Welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Punya Mishra. Punya is at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University, where he is the Associate Dean of Scholarship and Innovation, as well as a professor in the Division of Educational Leadership and Innovation. Prior to that, Professor Mishra was at Michigan State, where he directed their educational technology program. He has done extensive research in the area of technology integration and teacher education, where he, along with Dr. Matthew Kaler, developed the Technological Pedagogical Content Knowledge Framework, or TPEC for short. This framework, along with the role of technology in the K-12 space, is the topic of today's conversation. If you listen and like what you're hearing, please remember to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to visit SpanningBoundaries.com to access the monthly newsletters. Here's Professor Punya Mishra. Professor Mishra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. So we're going to talk about the role of technology in the K-12 classroom, and I'm hoping that our conversation has value for parents, for teachers, and for school and district admin. Um, You don't need to have a strong background in instruction to have a voice in this conversation, but oftentimes admin are the ones who make most of the purchasing decisions. So having a framework to begin to analyze some of those decisions can be incredibly useful. And we're going to get into all of that shortly. But first, I wanted to ask about your 23rd law of parenting um, (laughs) that I saw in a recent presentation of yours, because I think this is a good way to frame our conversation. So what is your 23rd law of parenting and why do you think it's useful, not just as a parent, but as a way to think about the role of technology in the world of education. Thank you, Matt. I, oh, that's a great way to start. So first of all, um, I just love prime numbers. So it's not like I had 22 other laws and came up with 23. So I had to come up with a name for it. It was like, it's just funny. So it is 23rd law of parenting, but it was something that I used to uh, do with my kids. But let's say, for instance, my kids would come to me and they would try to convince me when they were you know, below 13 years of age that they wanted to go see this you know, PG-13 or, or, you know, whatever rated movie. And I would be like, okay, you've got to give me a rationale for it, you know? And so they'd have to go on like common sense media or someplace and read up as to why this was a movie that was worthwhile for them to go, even though technically they were not supposed to. And the idea there, the, the, the law is that for facts, go to Google, for wisdom, come to me. And I think that basically what it speaks to is the thing that we have access to information at a scale that was never ever possible in the entire history of the humans of human civilization. I mean, that in and of itself is something that should keep us educators just thrilled and excited beyond measure, right? However, we also know that not all of this information is right. And you know, there are vested interests. And you know, again, now who doesn't think about misinformation and false news and all of that? So there has to be an interpretive filter that has to be applied to the information that we receive. And I think that in some ways becomes the more important role of the parent or the educator or the adult or the array of adults uh, around a, a child or a group of learners. And I think that was sort of the point I think I was trying to make there, which is that mere access to information does not equal learning. It is access to information plus that critical judgment, that interpretive act. And those are the skills and mindsets that we actually want our children to develop. You know, it's not, and so I'm, like when I'm watching a movie, I love to sort of read reviews of the movie. It drives my kids crazy. Like why are you reading it? It's because now I have another lens on that movie. I'm still going to make my own interpretation of that movie or that book, but getting five or six more viewpoints allows me to have a richer understanding. How do we build those practices and ways of thinking? I think that's sort of at the heart of that law. No, I mean, I think it's wise uh, for, for facts, go to Google for wisdom, come to me. Um, and, and I hope, you know, as we move through the podcast that uh, that folks can think about that in the back of their mind um, around, you know, what the use of technology can be in, uh, in a K-12 classroom and also how you interact with technology with your own kids. If I can add to that, right? I mean, if you think about like when I was growing up in, in, in New Delhi in India, I would have to actively reach out for information. I you know, had membership, there were two good libraries, which was the British Council and the USIS library. I would have to take a bus across the city and I had multiple memberships so that I could go once a month and I could check out like you know, 10 or 15 books and that's how I accessed information. That thing is completely flipped today. So the issue is no longer that of access. The issue is how do we filter that? How do we make sense of it? How do we make meaning of it? And and at some level, it's a wonderful time. It's the best of times in terms of access to information and knowledge. And at another level, it is the worst of times, right? 
um, in terms of our developing the abilities to to navigate those. And as parents and as educators, we have to celebrate the access issue, but we also have to understand that our responsibility in some way has shifted. No doubt. I mean, in the, the events of uh, of the last couple months, I think certainly highlight absolutely. Uh, you know how challenging it is to navigate all the information and discerning fact from fiction, uh, conspiracy from from reality is mm-hmm. uh, is certainly mm-hmm. something that we should be thinking about when we approach uh, the use of technology. So, how did you get interested in the intersection of technology, pedagogy, and content? So, uh, my background is in engineering, and after that, I. Uh, you know, in India, the, I did not like the way engineering was taught. So I ended up in the School of Design wanting to make educational film. Mm. And one of the projects I had was on the evolution of stars I was making. And my sense was that video does some things really well, right? I mean, I, wa- I watched Carl Sagan growing up. I watched Jacob Ranosky growing up. At the same time, I'm also reading books about science. And I know that books are conveying information in a different way. There is an emotional content to the video, to, there is a visceralness and immersion to it, while there is a depth and a moment of reflection and sitting and doing calculations on paper that, that a book would provide. And as I am, I'm very interested in information graphics and how we display information. So I did this project, this is way back when, uh, when you know the, the Mac SEs were around, where I created this sort of three different ways of approaching the evolution of stars, you know, all of, you know, the, the, the astronomy, the science of it. And that I think was the first inkling in my head that there are different representational powers of different media. And that when we think about content and how we convey it to others, we have to think about that. And it was many years later when I was doing my PhD, uh, my PhD was on sort of different representations of the periodic table of elements. And I don't know how many of your listeners know that the standard representation that we get on in classroom walls and in textbooks where a whole series of elements, the actinides and lanthanides are pulled out. The reason they're pulled out is a constraint due to print medium. Otherwise those tables would become too long and you you wouldn't be able to fit it on a page. And so technology has constrained how we represent information. And then I found hundreds of different representations of the periodic table. And I created the software that allowed you to navigate them. Now, and this is early web, I'm talking 1997, 1998, right? And suddenly the way you interact with the periodic table, the way you understand it and navigate it changes because of the medium. And then once I went to Michigan State and I started working with Matt Kaler, these ideas sort of came together in these design sessions we were doing with educators and realizing that as educators worked with these tools, worked with their content, that there was something interesting that happens in our heads where we don't see content and pedagogy and technology as being different from each other. That the ideal, and good teachers have always known this. It's not something new for uh, a thoughtful, reflective educator. But I think that's where sort of the analytic framework started emerging. And then we started doing research on it, that good teaching is always about how you take the subject matter, whether it's fifth grade math or it is um, history, you know, AP history, or it is, you know, elementary school reading, matching that with the right tools, which, and we are very careful to not just talk about technology as being digital tools yep. or network tools, but pencil and paper is a technology, a whiteboard is a technology, a, a cell phone is a technology. And thinking about what affordances and powers do these tools have to match my pedagogical style to the content that needs to be covered. You want to remember the the names of the 50 states and their capitals? Guess what? Flashcards or some digital version of it are just fine for that. But you want to write well, flashcards aren't going to do it. You have to think about collaborative writing, peer review. Those are the kinds of tools that you need, which allow you to writing for authentic audiences, so on and so forth. No, and I I appreciate you uh, towards the end just highlighting the fact that paper and pencil is a form of technology because I, some, I think sometimes we we forget that and it is just about the tool and that idea of how to represent uh, something in a way that reaches the most students and it reaches the most students and also is is honest to the content hmm. instead of saying I mean mathematics requires pencil and paper and doodling and sketching if you're doing geometry you you know, you can't do it in the abstract. It has to be yeah. done concretely on pencil and paper, right? I mean, and so it's reaching the students, but also understanding 
the ideas of the content that need to be conveyed and what works best for that. Absolutely. And it makes me think, in, in one of your recent papers, you referenced Neil Postman in, mm-hmm. in a speech that he gave, I think, in 1996, 97. Oh, no. uh, but uh, f- I've been doing a, a book club with some family members, and we read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and just the various ways that uh, text versus digital media can be used uh, to tell a story, uh, mm-hmm. to convey information, and how it is so critical to think about, you know, the both the benefits, but also the limitations of some of those tools. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing about reading Postman or other thoughtful writers like that is that they are sort of thinking deeply about human society, human psychology, sociology, and making these interpretive moves, which stand true even 30 years later. I mean, that essay you can read today. Yep. And in fact, I mean, I wrote that piece basically just saying Postman was right. You know, that was essentially what I wrote, right? Um, and absolutely, like, I mean, that's where I think good historical understanding, contextual understanding becomes so critical. So before getting into TPAC, I want to just take a step back and address the idea of education technology. So in a recent presentation, you stated that there really isn't such a thing as an education technology. And my eyes lit up at that statement. Uh, I work in education technology, but I'm not sure that I believe that label. So sometimes I tell folks that I work in ed tech. Other times I tell folks that I work for a tech company that focuses on education. During a recent call with an assistant soup of a large district, she casually prefaced, prefaced a comment by saying, something like me and my colleague in the corporate world. And she didn't mean it pejoratively, but it did catch my attention. So tell me more about this, because my hunch is that you won't get widespread agreement on this statement, that most people do believe in this thing, education technology or educational technology. So why do you think it's not a real thing? So, you know, when you're giving a presentation, you all want to make a few statements which catch people's attention. So there's partly a bit of that playing. Of course. I'll be honest about that. But there is a deeper... Uh, sort of a point I'm trying to make there. And the point is this, that most of the tools and technologies that we see around us were not designed for education. And in fact, even the ones which were, so if you look at a textbook, a textbook, any textbook, the first 20 pages are just full of all the number of people who were consulted and brought in to really make this meet the needs of your classroom. And one of the first thing that we as educators do, we say, read chapters one and two. I have no idea why they put chapter three in there. Here is some supplementary stuff from the web that I printed out for you guys. So even things that have been designed purposefully for us, we take and redesign them for our purposes. So the same way this device, the cell phone, the smartphone was not designed for education, but I do complete workshops on how one can use the the video and the photography capabilities of this to teach physics, to teach Newton's laws. And so it is at that moment of where an educator sees a possibility and a potential that a technology becomes an educational technology. There is nothing inherently educational or non-educational about a thing. A tree can be an educational technology if you see a way of using that to help students learn something. So a technology is a tool for a certain purpose and an educational technology becomes a te- like a technology becomes an educational technology only when that intentional purposeful act by the educator to make that a tool for conveying knowledge, information, ideas, and so on. So that's the, I think the deeper point being made there, you know. Um, and there is a little bit of sort of a, a pushback against tools and technologies which people come and sell to districts, saying this is going to be the the solution to all your problems. Like not necessarily, right? I mean, you know, we, we all, I mean, I've served on the school board and, you know, uh, the kinds of products that are marketed and the way they're marketed are, you know, quite, kind of uh, insane, right? Um, so I think there's a bit of that, but I think the important piece is bringing the educator as a designer, you know, that it's their purposeful, intentional repurposing of, like Twitter is a good example, right? Um, I used to use Twitter as a back channel in my classroom. And so when you are doing readings, you're supposed to be on Twitter, putting up quotes, asking questions and so on. And suddenly this has become a public conversation. Uh, That was not what Twitter was designed for. I have no idea what Twitter was designed for. Um, I don't think anybody knows what it was designed for, but it is being used in multiple ways by different people. And I think that's the power. 
Yeah, and I appreciate that, uh, you know, that label educator as designer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that, that definitely resonates and not just using a technology because it's there, you know, or because you're told to do it, but recognizing that even if you are told to do it, you have agency in how you're Absolutely. actually going to employ that technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get into TPAC a little bit. So you published mm-hmm. a paper in 2006 on the TPAC framework. It has since been iterated upon by you and others. As of this morning, Google Scholar shows that it's been cited 10,821 times. So congratulations Thank on that. You. <laughs> um, it's been used extensively. So can you talk about the origins of the framework, such as whose work you, you built it upon? So I give a little bit of the history of where the sort of overall ideas came from, but it was essentially, I think uh, Matt and me, Matt Kaler, uh, my colleague who's at, uh, still at Michigan State, um, just having these opportunities to have these conversations around technology and learning. And then we were teaching these classes, which was very interesting classes where we had higher ed faculty working in design teams with masters and doctoral students to come up with sort of solutions or you know approaches to problems of practice that they were facing in their uh, work. And, and we had some funding from the college to actually study that process. And as we were looking at it, it became clear to us that as we were following the conversation that initially, let's say the grad student was a sort of more technologically proficient, they would talk of just the technology piece of, oh, we could build a website or we could do X, while the faculty member would be talking more of the pedagogy of you know, student understanding. My experience tells me that students have a hard time doing this. And initially those conversations would be sort of at cross purposes or just yeah. parallel to each other, right? Never the twain shall meet. However, as they engaged in this act of design, we could see the spiraling effect where suddenly conversations became much more nuanced and started balancing the technology and pedagogy and content very powerfully. So if a person was teaching, let's say a course to math educators, suddenly tools and technologies which were relevant to math would start popping up and pedagogical techniques which would allow student, you know, uh, pre-service teachers to actually engage in mathematical ideas would start bubbling to the forefront. And I think that was sort of the, the first inklings that we had that there was something interesting happening there. In terms of intellectual history, actually the TPAC idea had been around for a while in terms of people had mentioned it in passing. Um, and so I think we were part of that zeitgeist and we were just lucky to have, I think, written that paper. I'm very proud of that paper because I think it's 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 one of, uh, it's a well-written paper. Uh, let me put it that way. It's accessible without being simplistic, you know, a balance that is often hard to strike in academic writing. Um, and I think, one of the intellectual strands that we build on is that of Lee Schulman and his idea of pedagogical content knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the paper is structured, saying that you know you have just because somebody is a good mathematician, let's say, or musician, doesn't necessarily make them a good math teacher or a music teacher. There is that added element, that's what Schulman talked about, that where we understand how to transform content in a pedagogically valuable way so that learners can learn it. It requires understanding learners' misconceptions, their background, so on and so forth, right? So the, and, and the strategies you use. What we said is that given this rapid change that the technology change is happening, that there is an additional component of knowledge that is increasingly important for teachers to have. But if you think about back then, and it, sadly it has changed somewhat, but not as much as we would like, the typical teacher prep program or professional development program for practicing teachers would be, let's go do this workshop on wikis. And now it's your job to figure out how wikis help you Mm -hmm. do X, Y, and Z. So there would be a technology course in a pre-service program, right? And then it was up to the student to map it. And Judy Harris has actually done some quite a bit of extensive meta-analysis and research to show that that just does not work. And so the TPAC sort of argument is that we have to provide teachers and pre-service teachers and educators authentic opportunities to do that integration. And that's how sort of the TPAC would develop. And can you, you know, without getting too into the weeds and a link to your website where folks, you know, can see the, the TPAC diagram, I think that'll, that'll help. But um, just sort of get 
into the purpose of TPAC uh, and that intersection right in the middle of technology, content, and pedagogy, and sort of what what lies in the middle of that. And maybe you can speak a little bit to, you know, prior to um, starting recording, you talked about how you're not seeing content being practiced a whole lot or integrated into that centerpiece. So um, yeah, just like a quick overview, maybe for somebody who isn't as familiar with the sure, framework. Sure. So I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, like you said, so many citations for this paper. It is actually a relatively trivial idea. That's what I said. Good educators, you know, knew it all along. I think we articulated in a way. And basically what it says is that if you want to teach X, you have to understand how to not just know the content, whether it's math or music or science or whatever it may be. You have to understand the learner. You have to understand their leanings, their interests, their misconceptions, their prior knowledge in order to take this content and convert it into something to convey to them. And as we more and more use these tools, we have to get judicious and smart about which tools we use for what purpose. At the end of the day, that's all the TPAC framework really is. It's a very simple thing. It says that all education lies at the intersection of something that needs to be taught some approaches that we have for teaching it and some tools and technologies that we use to get there, right? And that's where the intersection of these three circles comes in. We have an outer sort of uh, dotted circle which speaks to the importance of context, which says that your classroom where every child might have a tablet and you want to teach, let's say, photosynthesis is a very different classroom than one, let's say, in classrooms, let's say, in India, where you go to a lab where the internet may or may not work where electricity may or may not be there for certain times a day, you would use computers in a very different way. So it is always, so that's one of the things around design. Design is always of the particular. And I think it was important to emphasize that TPAC is of the particular. Your practice in your classroom is gonna be different from what I do as a higher ed faculty member where a different array of tools are available to me. It's not a question of better or worse. It's just a question of being sensitive and aware that the, the context constrains us in certain ways. Yeah, and that's the outside circle that you've added over the last couple of years. And the way that I think about it, and I discovered this in my work, and it's not ex- in my last company working with school districts around technology integration, and it's not, you know, the novel finding, but you can have the fanciest technology. And if you're not using it well, it is not going to be as effective as the most basic technology yeah. that, that you're yeah. using. And I also want to, so you said that it's a relatively trivial concept. I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that the, I found frameworks to be both incredibly useful, but at the same time, not useful at all, because what mm-hmm. do I actually do with this? It tells me what, it doesn't tell me how. Um, last week I was uh, doing a workshop on data use and equity for a local school district, and I was showing them a uh, framework that showed a process of data use. So taking data and eventually turning it into action. And my point was that, well, yes, this shows you a process. It lays it out from A to B to C to D, although it's not exactly linear, but it doesn't tell you how to do any of those things. And so, you know, for you to make use of the framework itself, you need to, you know, have those deeper conversations. But what I like about frameworks, what I like about that framework and what I like about your framework, especially, is that it gives a common language to have some of these conversations. So while there are educators out there who you know, are doing this, when you start speaking uh, the, the same language, I do feel like you elevate uh, the conversation and you just add a layer of conceptual depth that wasn't there before. I, I agree. I mean, so I'm not trying to, uh, I think, undermine like the word. No, course, I, I really yeah. do think it's valuable. Um, but I also want to be respectful of educators who have instinctually done this, right? However, so in fact, in the 2006 paper, we give a range of reasons why this framework is important. And one of the reasons is that it now allows me to interrogate my own teaching. Mm -hmm. It allows me to ask questions and say, is this the right tool for the job? It allows me to ask the question, what about the content? What is the big idea that I want students to get? You know, what pedagogical, that's I think hugely important for anybody for to make it a part of their everyday practice, right? So, So yes, I agree. I think it gives us a common language. It allows us to pay attention to certain things which we may not have paid attention to before. And as researchers and scholars, and it has given us opportunities to study what happens in classrooms and educators that 
you know, through a lens, um, Darwin, you know, said like, you know, every like collection of information is for or against a point of view. Without that, we are just collecting, you know, sand or seashells, right? Um, and I think a framework is valuable to the extent that it allows us to see a complex phenomena such as the classroom and say, what kinds of questions should we be asking? Mm -hmm. And TPAC is one framework out of many that can one can use to look at a classroom or a learning situation. I think when it comes to technology and learning, TPAC is valuable there, you know, and it has its own limitations. I mean, I would be the last person to, so for instance, uh, one of the limitations of TPAC is that it has, it provides no indication as to the genuine goals of education. It's completely neutral with respect to that. You might have the most behaviorist classroom, which is rote learning, and TPAC will very happily tell you, go with flashcards, go with this, go with that. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So those questions of value, of what we value and what we teach are beyond the TPAC framework. It was never meant to answer that question and is, is neutral with respect to that. So that's a limitation. Yeah, well, and uh, a couple of things there. One, uh, my most recent newsletter in the leadership version, I had an article by Gerd Bista around the need to re-engage with values in education. And so I appreciate the call out that uh, your framework doesn't speak to that. I, as I was trying to select the articles, it's clear now that teachers need more support around how to use technology in their classrooms. And I had spoken with a couple district leaders who said, you know, my students need support around how to get their students, I mean, sorry, my teachers need support around how to get their students to collaborate together. And so I started looking for some research into that, how to use Google Docs. And I think a lot of that stuff, it exists on sites like Edutopia. And it's not that that stuff isn't valuable, but I don't know that it has the ability to create like a sustained transformation in one's practice. And so the ability to use a framework to truly interrogate one's right. practice um, and to think, you know, long-term, not just how do I get my students to do something tomorrow so that they're talking to each other, but what is the change that I can institute to, uh, you know, to do this long-term? Um, and I think that's where a lot of the value comes in as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because one of the things, I think the strength of the TPAC framework is that it is it doesn't care what technology you're talking about. It could be pencil and paper. It could be the fanciest VR setup, right? But the same questions still need to be asked in each time. What value is it bringing in representing and presenting content and, and the ideas that we want to convey? You know, uh, that our learners can actually genuinely, authentically engage with it and learn from it. Before we spoke, I was having lunch uh, with my wife and she's a third grade teacher and was asking mm -hmm. her, you know, what kinds of questions would she want me to ask you around technology use? And she mentioned that the collaboration piece as well. And I was asking her sort of some of the things that she's doing in her classroom. And she was saying that she has her students use pencil and paper a lot when they're on Zoom. It's all remote teaching. Mm -hmm. Sure. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I was typing out some questions on my computer, but uh, felt like I hit a sticking point and needed to think more almost about like a narrative arc. And for that, I moved to paper and pencil because yeah. that's where I felt like the ideas in that yeah. situation were flowing a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a good example of two fairly similar, like at least in appearance mediums, Google Docs or piece of paper in front of me sure. yet have, uh, you know, different purposes, different outcomes. Um, Absolutely. You and, 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 and realizing the strengths of each and yeah. knowing when to switch back and forth. I mean, we want our learners to be facile with sort of moving between one and the other. You know, they need to know what one thing is good for and what the other isn't good for or maybe not as strong for so if I'm a teacher or an instructional coach or assistant soup of curriculum and instruction, what's one thing that you'd want them to know about the TPAC framework? Um, and that could be, you know, a way to actually put it into practice. I think the first and foremost thing is this idea of educators as designers, that these tools and technologies that are out there may not necessarily have been designed for you, but you can bring your creativity, your ingenuity, to seeing opportunities to teach students, right? Uh, with that, I think that's first and foremost. And then once you look at these tools and you see these opportunities, 
ask yourself these questions. Does it match the content? Does it match my pedagogical style? It may match your pedagogical style. It may not match mine. So maybe I shouldn't be using it, right? And so that's the, so that would be sort of the two-step process, I would say. But I think the 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 emphasis on teacher agency, you know, that this is not a, a solution that's handed down to to you from somewhere up above that you are an active agent in creating these powerful learning experiences for your students and they have to work well together. The, the technology, the pedagogy and the content, if they work together, you will actually have a much higher chance of getting productive learning than in any other situation. Yes, and of course it's, it's easier said than done. Teachers are you know so busy, they have so many things they're being sure. asked to do, but it makes me just think you know, not to settle, not to just use something because Somebody up high said that this is a tool that we're using. So, you know, you're going to have to use it. Yeah. So you wrote in a recent paper um, that TPAC does not exist in a vacuum. Uh, technology integration occurs within systems and cultures of practice. These systems and cultures of practice can often define or constrain the kinds of moves teachers can make in the pedagogical space, uh, end quote. So what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by systems and cultures? So... One of my big interests, you know, TPAC sort of happened along the way. I've always been interested in this idea of educators as designers. So I approach the work that I do. In fact, I, def I define myself as an educator designer uh, because I look at the work that we do as design. And as I was working with schools and cool districts, um, it got increasingly difficult to explain what it is that we were doing when we talk about systems change and so on. And so we have this uh, model for how we think about the role of design in education. And that model says that at some level, we design artifacts. So the artifacts may be the chair in the classroom or you know, the, an app, or it might be a textbook. The second thing, we design are processes. Like how do I get students to move through X, Y, and Z, right? There is a process that I develop. The third thing we design are experiences. Like what is the nature of the student learning experience? And clearly artifacts, and processes play an important part in that. As long as I was working with teachers, my sort of attention was focused on those three. After coming to Arizona State, I have had a chance to work at sort of school design and sort of and larger scale design efforts and started understanding that it is the systems and culture within which these things function that in many ways constrain and determine what's going to happen. And in that paper, basically we're making the argument is that as an educator, as a teacher, you need to understand what the soft levers of power are within your organization. You need to understand how you can get your way, how you can get teachers together to find opportunities to do something new and innovative. And that requires knowledge, not just of technology, pedagogy and content, but knowledge of the broader system and structure within which you work. If I talk to administrators, I talk about what you are designing are systems and culture. You are not designing the artifacts, you are not designing the processes, you are not designing. But if you create the right system and culture, your educators and the rest of your team will take care of that. And the analogy I gave and my docs, graduate students actually went and interviewed him. Uh, this is President Michael Crow at Arizona State. He came to ASU 15 or 18 years ago. And ASU was then known as a party school. And in 15, 18 years, he has transformed this university. It is now regarded as a highly innovative university. We have made moves in so many different directions. There is a strong social commitment. There's a strong local commitment. And we went and interviewed him, like, how did you design a university? You know, if you're a graphic designer, you work with fonts and colors and so on. But if you're a president of a university, you work with hiring and firing and, and mm -hmm. policy decisions and forcing the school of evolution to get into the same building with computer science to hope something interesting will happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's where this idea of seeing this whole educational enterprise as being a designed thing by chance or happenstance or by purpose. And that since it's been designed by people, it can be undesigned and redesigned by us as well. And I think that was sort of the motivation of saying that as an educator, it's not enough for you to be thinking of your classroom or your context. You have to think of what are the outside structures that are constraining. And sometimes you may not have any choice to be able to push mm -hmm. against that. And that's, that's life, right? But 
once you understand that, you might actually find avenues and opportunities which you did not even know existed. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, in my almost now five years working with school and district leaders on various complex strategic implementations, it it feels, you know, oversimplified to say something like this, but it often just feels like it comes down to culture and mm-hmm. certain orgs that have that culture in place are able to do the work well, primarily because they have a vision for what the work looks like and they're not trying you know, 10 other things all at the same time, but there's some cohesion to whatever it is that they're hoping to accomplish. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get the question, what is that other organization doing that's working that we're not doing? And it, it, it so often just comes back to that culture piece. I mean, we could spend hours talking about what we mean by culture, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, truly, uh, identifying and thinking about what it is that you, that you want to do and, uh, and working to, to try to achieve it. So, you know, I do the series uh, called Silver Lighting for Learning, you know, with, with Young Zhao, Chris Didi, Kurt Bonk, and I started this like 45 weeks ago once the pandemic started, and we do it every Saturday. And we have had a chance to talk to educators from across the world. You know, the thing that stands out for a couple who really took the COVID-19 crisis and managed to pivot in ways that were truly exceptional and valuable to the learners were organizations which had the right culture. Mm -hmm. They already had a culture where people felt ownership. People had a sense of agency. People had a core set of values of caring for the weakest learner, not for the medium learner. And if I look at the conversation that we had with Sean Lesher, who runs the Urban Discovery Schools in San Diego, conversations with Kiran Sethi, who runs the school in in Ahmedabad in India, I mean, that just comes out so clearly that these organizations were prepared not for the pandemic. They were prepared for any kind of a crisis that would come along because they had their values in the right place and they had the teams who were trusting of each other. And had, and had a sense of agency and ownership that this is not somebody else's problem. This is our problem and we need to respond to it. And so that culture piece to me has become, and, and systems too, because systems are the skeleton on which culture survives, right? And if we don't have the right systems in place, culture just becomes a bunch of vapid words. You know, so Michael Crow couldn't just keep going. We are innovative, we are innovative. He had to create systems which push people together to be innovative. And then the mantra makes sense. You know, too often culture, you know, culture becomes a, a, a vision statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If that's not instantiated in any, I mean, equity is a great example, right? I mean, after the whole George Floyd and the summer and all of that, every institution has a statement out there. How is that instituted in the work that you do? That's the structure. That's the, the system. And unless that system holds in place, the culture won't work, but they work together because you mm-hmm. can't have systems and you don't have the right language around it either, right? So. Yeah, they're co-constitutive of, of one yes. another. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, I hadn't heard that before. Systems are the skeleton on which culture survives. That's interesting. As you know, if I look at my migration in life from being engineer to design to education to being this administrator, right? So I've actually gone from like designing artifacts to uh, processes, you know, yeah. experiences. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of my life traverse right that way. Um, but what's interesting is the two things that I never paid much attention to as a designer were processes and systems, because these are the two least sexy ones of the lot. Yeah. Designing an app is cool. Designing a powerful learning experience is cool. Talking about culture is cool. But so the two sort of skeleton on which everything else actually holds are processes and systems. And so higher ed or educational leaders are not really given that insight early on. They have to sort of figure it out themselves. And that's, I think that's been a big insight for me. Yeah, and not to, 
sort of poo-poo teacher autonomy. But if you think about designing processes and systems in the right ways where teachers can easily fit into those and fulfill the values that you're hoping to achieve as an organization. So while they might not be sort of the sexy things that you do, um, you know, they're not the new, you know, set of brand new Chromebooks or something like that. They are sort of that skeleton uh, to which you're, you're referring. Exactly. So in a 2020 article titled Tipping Point um, for Online Learning, you write, quote, I have been in the educational technology field for almost three decades now, and I would not be in the field if I didn't believe that technology has a great potential to transform education. That said, over the past few years, I have become increasingly concerned and skeptical about how this potential actually plays out, which aspects of technological potential are emphasized and which get ignored, how certain views get essentialized and normalized and which do not, who gets to control the discourse and who does not, and most importantly, on whom does the burden fall, end quote. So I appreciate that sentiment and I have similar feelings. Can you just talk more about what you what you meant by that? I mean, if one thing the COVID-19 crisis has done to us, it has revealed the inequities in our system. There is just no doubt about it, right? Whether we talk about it in terms of healthcare, whether we talk about it in terms of job security, whether we talk about it in terms of education, right? And that those gaps were there, they've always been there. The, 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 the virus does not discriminate, we do. And that differentially impacts us. And I think that, the, you know, just a simple statistic that if you're African-American, the chances that you know somebody who died of COVID, like, sorry, one in three African-American know somebody who's died of COVID. And for the rest of the population, that it's a much different, bigger number, like the, the ratio is much different, tells us something, right? And so I think that what has happened with the discourse around educational technology, we have been swayed by like what a technology can do not understanding that the role of technology is so determined by broader social and cultural factors that those technologies, which honestly, when I started out in the field, I felt were so liberating and awesome, democratizing, whether we look at the web or we look at social media, up to see how they have become controlled by certain groups and not by others, that our data right now, your wife is teaching third grade, your kids most probably are doing some things online. There are now data traces on all of us starting from birth onwards, a large part contributed by us by putting their pictures on Instagram, <laughs> you know, or Facebook and so on. And that there is no discussion at a social level of the implications of this. I think that's what sort of, so that's what I think brings that sort of pessimism, the pessimistic note uh, into my thinking is that we have too often focused on the immediate tool or the immediate emergency and so on, but not really sat down and thought about who's in this conversation, whose voices are we listening to, whose voices are just completely absent from this conversation, you know? And, mm -hmm. and educational technology or any technology can be incredibly powerful and emancipatory, but it can also do immense harm. And I don't think that we have had those conversations as a field. And I, I put myself to blame for that for the longest time. I was very happy thinking of, oh, this allows me to do X. This cool mm -hmm. tool is yeah, so, yeah. you know, so yeah. cool. And again, that is not to undermine that these tools are not cool or whatever, but that there is a broader discussion that needs to happen. And if I had one thing that I would change, I would have focused my work over the past years, much more around issues of equity and, and these gaps than I did. And I think it is just a wake up call for all of us as a field to recognize that and, and to accept that. Yes, and I, I think there, something that we've talked about is the idea of agency. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you were talking, it made me think about, oh, here's a new tool. Oh, that's cool. It can do this, this, and this. But as you refer, you know, as you reference, we don't often think about you know what harm it might be doing, and so mm -hmm. teacher agency coming in and saying, "All right, this is a tool I'm expected to use. Like, let's have a real conversation about both its benefits and its potential harms, and how I can use this in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, jeopardize my students or um, you know, reify you know historical inequities that um, mm -hmm. you know that I might be contributing to." Yeah. Yeah. 
So one more question um, that I had uh, going back to Neil Postman. So in uh, that 1998 talk, five things we need to know about technological change. One of those things is that, and this I think piggybacks off of that last question too, is that technological change is not additive. It's ecological, meaning that it changes everything. Uh, and I don't disagree, but tech has changed dramatically in the last 40 years, yet most schooling practices don't feel like they have a whole lot. And when I say that, I often reference Seymour Papert's 1980 book, mm -hmm. Mindstorms. Um, if schools adopted today some of the tech integration strategies proposed by Papert 40 years ago, I feel like they'd be more sophisticated users of tech. Um, so why do you why do you think that statement uh, is is so relevant, that technological change is not additive, that it is ecological? So I think you have to understand that Postman was not necessarily writing about technologies for education. Mm -hmm. See, he was speaking more at a broader social sense, right? And that, I mean, there are some really awesome examples, you know. Um, so for instance, uh, Gutenberg's uh, printing press, right? And at some level, the foundation of schooling is the book. You know, we go look stuff up in the book and it took yeah. knowledge and it said knowledge can be inscribed, it is mobile, it can be transported from one person to another. I mean, it changed the way we think about learning and education. But another interesting thing happened. People had never been, had to peer at small things that closely for that long. And suddenly once Gutenberg's uh, printing press started off, spectacles started being made, or it became a booming business all over Europe because people suddenly realized they had bad eyesight, which I thought, oh, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But think about what happens after that. What happens after that, people start playing with lenses. And guess what? We start making microscopes, we start making telescopes. And so I think that's what Postman is trying to say is that the effect of the printing press, you know, there is a reason why the Reformation, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the idea that all men are created equal came after the printing press. Because it suddenly said that there is no elite who controls the knowledge, who can read and write, and you can't. It democratizes things. So I think that's what he's trying to say, that once a technology enters into the into our world, it doesn't just impact one thing, that its tendrils sort of go everywhere. We are now seeing, I think, with the rise of social media, going back to sort of the day of orality, you know, where orality is really about whether I trust you. I don't go look it up in a book, mm -hmm. right? And that is a very fundamental transformation. Um, there's a great story by Ted Chiang mm -hmm. called uh, The Truth of Fact and the Truth of Feeling. I'm not sure that I know that one, but if you aren't familiar with Ted Chiang's uh, short stories, I highly recommend. Right. Oh, I love Ted Chiang. Yeah, I he's love great. Ted Chiang. He's yeah. insanely good. But this story, you know, he takes these ideas of orality and technology and, and, and rise of print, and he actually makes a fictional story out of it, which is heartbreakingly beautiful, which is his talent, right? Um, and I was almost like sort of jealous because I'd been reading the same authors and Walter Ong and this, that, and the other. And then he writes the story, which is way better than any paper that I would ever write on the impact <laughs> of technology. But I think anyway, coming back to Postman, I think Postman is, that's the point Postman is making. And I think that, and we can argue about why schools haven't changed and so on, because I think there are systems which are so deeply interconnected with society, which has to do with schooling and going to college and credentialing and what pieces of paper you can show to an employer for them to believe that you actually know what you claim to believe. I mean, that's a very complicated interlocked system. And it's it's that which is hard to change. You know, but that broader society around us has there has been like an ecological shift that also cannot be denied. I mean. So you had mentioned at the beginning of the conversation around content, and I don't know if you want to address that uh, yes, before we hop off, but... Um... Yeah, I'm sorry. You had asked that earlier and I never got around to it. So one of the things that I'm seeing post-COVID is as more and more educators are now being, for want of a better word, forced to use these tools, whether it's Zoom or Google Classroom or what have you, I'm seeing a great interest and discussion when I read online, what people are talking online about that. If you look at the TPAC framework of this intersection between technology and pedagogy, how do I engage, keep students engaged in X, Y, and Z? How do I break them into small groups and then bring back again? The question he asked about how do I get kids to collaborate? Mm 
So I'm seeing a lot of that intersection. Sadly, what's missing in that conversation is content. That music is fundamentally different from math, is fundamentally different from art, is fundamentally... And that we have to think of what affordances these tools have or what additional tools do we need to bring in to truly genuinely get at mathematics or music or whatever it is that we want to teach. I'm sure individual educators are doing it, but I'm not seeing the discussion around it. I'm not seeing the building of infrastructure or support to do that well. You know, And so for instance, if you want to do trigonometry, there are lots of simulations which are online that you could use to understand you know, the Pythagorean theorem or what a unit circle is. And those are really powerful tools out there, but that's customized for math. And, and biology would have a different set of tools. I, I, I wish there was more discussion around all three of them rather than just two of them. Does that make sense? No, no, that does make sense. I mean, I think the point is that, it, that I'm seeing, just like you know, uh, Shulman talked about pedagogical content knowledge, I'm seeing a great growth in educators' technological pedagogical knowledge. So mm-hmm. now they are becoming more adept at using technology for teaching. What I would like to see is more conversation and discussion and training and workshops and, you know, whatever, um, professional development opportunities, which start probing what are the big ideas of the content, right? What is a big idea of your biology classroom and what tools and technologies are best suited for that? I think that's a missing piece. And once that happens, I think we're approaching TPAC. Yeah, so you're thinking about, if I can rephrase a little bit, so let's say that I'm a a science teacher who is getting my students to collaborate using some sort of digital technology. And then when I think about what content should be infused into that equation, that might be a very different experience than if I'm a math teacher thinking about getting my students to collaborate. And maybe, you know, this other tool maybe is more, I don't know, scientifically inclined than Right, or mathematically inclined and so Right. Yeah. Right. So I think that's the piece that I think um, that's missing from the conversation right now. Well, that is all I had, um, but um, I enjoyed the conversation very much, no, okay. um, and uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. No, Matt, this was this was fun. Um, you know, I always enjoy having these conversations with educators. You know, I don't get to do it as much as I used to with my role now. So thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to you know further conversations in the future.